Hi guys, Russell here. Uh, as my ongoing efforts to sort of build uh, a model portfolio and thinking about portfolio construction, you know, I've had to start doing some deep thinkings about uh, the markets that I think are important. Uh, and I've always thought basically interest rates, currencies and commodity markets are the sort of big markets that really drive changes, structural changes. Uh, and so I've decided to, uh, in this post, look at energy markets uh, what I find in the energy markets is there's a lot of what I would say sort of hot take analysis uh, that looks at sort of various parts without really getting deep into what's really going on uh, and so it sort of loses focus on, on a lot of different things. I think really can muddies the picture and confuses the picture. So I'm going to just talk about three different separate things I've seen in the energy market uh, to sort of give you the punchline. First one is the SPR is not going to be refilled. I've talked about this before, but I think I'll just remind people. Uh, to me, it looks like U.S. shale oil and gas supply is under control uh, and possibly going to fall in the near future. And that despite problems in the offshore wind industry, that is going to continue to be built out, but will probably require higher pricing. So let's look at those three things in turn. Um, so... First of all, you know, with the uh, revolution in shale oil and gas, we've seen U.S. oil production uh, rise from sort of, you know, 5 million barrels a day uh, to nearly 13 million barrels a day today. So from over 10 years or so. So tremendous growth. Now, what that has meant is, in my view, is that the strategic petroleum reserve is no longer a necessary product. So what you may have seen out there, particularly in other Substack writers and some armchair macro analysis, is that the Biden administration has been dumping this oil into the market uh, to try and keep oil prices down temporarily. Uh, and then at some point, this SPI will have to be refilled and oil prices will, be, will spike. Now, oil spike prices may well rise, but I very, very much doubt the SPI will ever be refilled. So what is the SPI? Why was it built? So back after sort of the OPEC uh, oil crises of the sort of 70s, uh, the IEA um, went out and recommended that oil, all, all major oil importers, um, mainly OECD, uh, should have at least 90 days of net imports uh, on hand. And if you look at this sort of uh, chart that I produced, you can see that the SPR held far more oil than commercial sources. And the reason for that is that when... U.S. signed up to it, it, went, it didn't want to force U.S. oil producers to hold that much oil, which would have been uh, profit-losing for them. So they did it themselves. Uh, and so when you take the total inventory and divide by the days of, of net imports, you can see around 2000 uh, through to sort of 2009, 2011, the U.S. was right on the limit of uh, inventory as, as percentage of total imports. And then as slowly as U.S. shale production took off, you can see net imports got lower and lower. Uh, and now the inventory is as, as, as days of imports is very, very high, highest among the sort of developed nations of big net importers of nations. So the US doesn't need the SPR anymore. The uh, holdings of commercial holdings of inventory, which is mainly for refining and stuff, is perfectly necessary. So my advice to you is ignore any SPR data and, and generally ignore any analysis using the SPR as a crutch for their energy analysis. They're lazy and they're not doing the work. It's all written out there. It's very easy to understand. So just ignore them. So then we go uh, and look at U.S. shale production in more detail. And what we've seen over the last few years is that 
U.S. shale production, both for oil and gas, has increasingly become dominated by the Permian. Permian region, there are a lot of reasons for that. It's closer to refineries, closer for export markets. It is actually a very old field, so it has a lot of the infrastructure in place. And so it's become the market, the go-to market for producers to work in. And it's come to dominate uh, oil production and other things. Now, what is unusual out of the Permian region is over the last, since COVID, they've really gotten religion on uh, capital returns and capital structure, which is why they're getting bought. And so what we've seen is they've been completing this inventory of wells and really drilling not very much. So this inventory of wells that were in place and ready to produce oil and, and gas has actually been run down over the last few years. So what we've started to see is that the total number of wells, so DUIC or drilled uncomplete wells in, in, the, in the Permian is now at quite low levels. And you can do that, look at it in a number of different ways. It's about four months of completions now, which is in line with the other big uh, shale, shale regions. So actually the Permian doesn't have any excess capacity. Now, why is that a big deal? So if we take uh, the EIA data, what the EIA does is it tries to show you how much new well is coming off to offset the decline. So basically, you get tend to get most of your production in the first year. Uh, they're kind of trying to improve that technology to change it, so there's a bit of an upward bias here. But in, in essence, to grow oil production, you need to be producing it quicker than it's declining. And so what we can take is U.S. shale oil production and, and produce the decline line and the new production line. And generally, the best way to understand that is that the decline line is going to be new production rolled 12 to 18 months forward. And so what you need is you need constant growth to just stay growing. You need to keep going. And so we had a big collapse during COVID, which is then recovered. But if we look at the, the amount of new oil being brought online, it's not really much higher that were what we were seeing in 2019, 2020. But the decline is actually getting up to the sort of highest levels we've seen. And when I look at this, and if we look at like the new production, it's starting to actually just inflect lower, which would be in line with reduced drilling. We'd probably say, I would say that we're looking at shale oil uh, production looking to probably peak sometime in the next year or so. That would be my guess. I must see a big change in that market. Now, one of the ways I try and sort of look at market data to confirm that is I look at not oil prices, but I look at January 28 natural gas future prices. So why am I looking at that specific date? Well, I want to look in the future. So 28 is far enough in the future to get an idea. January, if because of natural gas is very seasonal, you want to look at a specific month to get rid of that seasonality. So that's why I just look at January. And what you can see in the pricing here is that that was in a strong bear market really through 2020. It started to turn in 2021, but, you know, we we then saw a break higher in 21 and a big spike in 22 uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine. And then, you know, in line with a lot of other energy markets being weak, but not really that weak, it's sort of still staying at a strong level. What that implies to me is that we have, we still have supply discipline in the States. If the supply discipline was disappearing, I think the long day of natural gas markets would collapse. Why natural gas, not oil? When they do oil, is actually much harder to get out with shale. Shale works really well for natural gas. So you get a lot of natural gas as a byproduct of oil production. So natural gas is a natural uh, commodity to get into uh, surplus and glut uh, when shale production is out of control. 
So if the natural gas market is okay, it probably means the oil market is going to be even better because it's a much more difficult product to extract using shale. So for me, I think U.S. Uh, energy supply, fossil energy supply is well under control. And then finally, in the renewable space, uh, in particular in offshore wind, uh, we have a leading uh, Danish producer, Orsted. Orsted is a massive uh, wind farm, uh, uh, wind energy producer. And what we're seeing is that share price has fallen 77% since peak and, and with 50% of that this year. Um, now, again, if you didn't want to do any analysis on this, you could say that the economics of uh, wind industry is dead or we're running out of wind space and uh, renewables are never going to work. And I see that sort of analysis around. I think that's wrong. Again, I think it's lazy analysis. What we've seen, I think, in, and if you go look at Orsted's uh, presentations, they're still producing, produce, uh, uh, predicting huge growth in the space, and I think that's correct. So why is the share price so weak? I think the real problem for Orsted and other, other, other sort of uh, offshore wind producers, and, and Reuters had an article about this in early 2022, is that when the, US went, uh, the UK went off to auction seabeds and you need to own the seabeds to build these offshore wind, we suddenly had an, uh, a rush of new uh, people bidding, mainly big oils, Shell, Ibridola was in there, but BP as well. And they came in and they raised record amounts uh, for these seabeds. And at the time, I also said, if you bid up these seabeds so much, the cost structure of the whole industry is going to go up and we can't make as much money. They said that, and the share price has been weak ever since. And I think what you have to look at is, I think, originally with Orsted, uh, the market got very excited and thought the returns that they could generate without uh, facing competition from big oil were going to be sustainable for future, forever. They weren't. Uh, what we've seen is that the big oil have come in and said, you know what, this market is very attractive. We have the expertise. We're going we're gonna to come in and we're going to bid this up to what our return, what our necessary return on capital is, which I think is much less lower than what investors at Allstead were predicting. And so Allstead has revalued from six times book down to about 1.7 today. So still a premium to book, but just, you know, the market is reflecting the... Re- lower returns that we're going to accrue to this company. And to be, reality, the reality is, is when the higher seabed prices means less spending by taxpayers, at least at the front end. Um, so you've got two questions you can ask yourself about here with the offshore. And you know, I know that in the most recent auction, there were no bids uh, for the new offshore, but the price was lower before. So you've got two options here the government's got to face is that Obviously, the people who paid up for, for seabeds want to get a higher price to get a higher return. Now, the government could just screw them over and say, no, you've got to take a loss on that. And then they'll lose on the next seabed auction. That would be market forces at, at work. Or they could push up the price they pay for offshore wind to get that market working again, which, of course, would be a benefit to Austin. I don't know. That's, that's politics for you. But it does seem to me when I look at, let's say, uh, European tradable carbon prices, which have stayed strong despite weak uh, European natural gas prices uh, have stayed strong, it more than likely implies to me that that price we pay for renewable energy will be pushed up. And so for me, when we put it all together, so yes, the, SP, uh, you know, the SPR, some excitable people say it's going to spike oil, that's wrong. But what I think is true is that uh, supply of fossil energy is, uh, fossil energy is going to fall. So there's going to be an upward bias to fossil energy prices. 
Uh, I think the politics is pointing to upward prices for renewable energy prices. So for me, energy inflation looks set to return, uh, which is important because that is the, you know, the, the flip side of the GLD TLT trade that I've been talking about for a, for a while. I think commodity inflation is set to return, at least energy inflation. All right. I hope that makes sense. Got any questions, drop me a line. Stay safe. We'll talk again soon. Ciao.